The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Expert Nursing Insights on Personalized Care for Gynecologic Cancers, Educating and Supporting Patients on the Latest Therapeutic Approaches. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash VRD860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening and welcome, and thank you for joining us today, and welcome to ONS. I'm so glad that everybody is here. I'm glad you decided to pick your first night to spend with us, and you are here, and we are here tonight to talk about expert nursing insights on personalized care for gynecological cancers, so I hope we're all in the right room, right? I would like to introduce myself. My name is Kimberly Hollett, and I'm joined by my colleagues here, Ms. Kimberly Camp and Dr. Moore. Listed here are our goals for the today. We'd really like to bolster your understanding of the evidence in supporting modern therapeutic approaches in patients with gynecologic cancers. We'd really like to talk to nurses such as yourselves about strategies and how we integrate these options into a personalized care and education plans for your patients and really equip you with the team-based skills needed for today's modern world in gynecologic cancers and the new therapeutic regimens. I'd like to kick off tonight, and we'd like to talk about understanding the modern strategies and the importance of molecular testing in the guide and the treatment and the selections. Again, my name is Kimberly Halla. Let's give us a quick overview of gynecologic cancer. So let's talk first about endometrial cancer. Endometrial cancer as a whole represents about 3.4 new cases of cancer in the United States, an estimated about 69,950 cases every year right? Median age is about 63 years old. And if you look at the bottom here, I think I have a mouse, that five-year survival data is about 81.3%. But if we look closely over here, if we can get our women into our offices and we have a localized diagnosis, look at that five-year survival rate, 94.9%. Okay. When we talk about cervical cancer, actually cervical cancer only represents about 0.7% of new cases of cancer in the, diagnosed in the United States, about 14,000 cases diagnosed in the year of 2022, accounting for about 4,280 deaths with an average age is about 50 years old, 66% survival data. But again, let's look at that five-year survival stage when we can diagnose this early especially in cervical cancer where we have great screening tools. When we talk about ovarian cancer, representing about 1% of new cancers, about 19,000 new cases, actually that's down compared to about you know, over 20,000 in the last 2021. 13,000 deaths occurred in those years as well. Again, median age of diagnosis is 63 with that 50.8% survival data. Again, five-year survival, when we have early stage in a localized disease, 92.4%. So if you understand my theme here and how we can get involved, early diagnosis really save lives. When we talk about disparities in specifically endometrial and ovarian cancers, the overall mortality rate for endometrial cancer is now very comparable to ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer used to outrank all of gynecologic cancers until endometrial cancer started to rise. In fact, 2% annually, it's risen since 2008 until the time of measurement of 2018. And the patients who have the most disparities of it are black patients, right? The burden for black patients now is increased disproportionately to anything else. 
And you can kind of see here with this slide, non-Hispanic black women, that endometrial cancer is rising where ovarian cancer is actually going low. All right, so we need to do a better job for our patients. And how do we do that? We talk about genetic testing, right? We should all be familiar with genetic testing at this point because our patients coming in should be tested. Every ovarian cancer patient, every endometrial cancer patient should have the benefit of getting personalized care for their disease based on their genetics. Specifically looking at endometrial cancers with reoccurrent or metastatic high-risk endometrial cancers, we have found that uterine carcinoma, 16% of those patients are HER2 positive. Now, we're probably not used to seeing HER2 positive in endometrial cancer. What are we used to seeing that in? Breast cancer, right? So let's take advantage of that HER2 positivity by adding trastuzumab to standard of care chemotherapy, which is carboplatin and paclitaxel. And you can see the results that these women get in the benefit when we take advantage of that abnormality. And that's what we want to do is take advantage of those abnormalities. And this goes far beyond what things that we're used to, right? We're very used to hearing BRCA1, BRCA2, but what is beyond that? What can we encourage our patients to talk about? This is another pathway of molecular analysis. Not only are we looking at HER2 positivity, we're looking at poly sequencing, looking at proficiency in MMR, deficiency in MMR, as well as P53 abnormalities. So these are way beyond just the standard treatments when we're looking at that way. And why is it so important? It's so important because you can see that those patients who are proficient in MMR, that's about 70 to 75% of patients. But what about those patients who are deficient, those patients who are MSI high? When we get that endometrial biopsy or we're doing that surgical staging surgery or that hysterectomy, 25 to 30% of those patients do have a positivity here, right? So they are MMR deficient or they are MSI high. Let's take advantage of that. How else can we take advantage of it? Let's use our immune system. I often tell people, you've had to live underneath a rock. You've had to live in the forest somewhere. I've never seen television, never picked up a magazine if you haven't seen immune therapy commercials or something targeting to your audience. Our patients are coming to us and asking for these medications because in their minds, our immune system should be able to fight this. In fact, right now, as we, you know, our patients are sitting there, T cells, the portion of our immune system, is looking at a cancer cell and looking at it going, mm, not quite normal, but not quite abnormal enough for me to kind of do anything about it. So how do we make this work in an anti-cancer strategy? So what immune checkpoint inhibitors do, and this is on a very basic level, right? So this is how I talk to my patients about this. This isn't how I would talk to a pharmacist or, you know, someone who've actually developed this medication. So what the immune uh, medications do is they kind of take the brakes off of those T cells, right? Those T cells kind of had a bit on a little bit of a leash. They're kind of, you know, you know, hey, hold back a little bit, hold back a little bit. The immune system now is going to be kind of ramped up. It allows that cancer cell to be identified, that T cell to attack, and be able to recognize it as foreign, right? Immune checkpoint inhibitors work by blocking that T cell in, uh, response, removes that break, and allows them to attack those cancer cells. Now, as you guys well know, you guys are in the trenches and you are the one giving the chemotherapy. You are the one explaining to your patients how this works. Most treatments are going with a multi system approach. 
our patients are no longer just getting chemotherapy, are they? They're getting chemo. They're getting, you know, an oral combination to it. They're getting, you know, TKIs. They're getting immune therapy. Our patients need to understand the differences on how these work. And my colleague Kim is going to explain to us some of those differences and how we can help them as nurses get to those side effects under control. As we move into those familiar abnormalities like BRCA1 and BRCA2, let's talk about PARP. Now, PARP has been in our world since about 2014 um, in the gynecologic setting. How does it work? So as we're sitting here, right, we are experiencing hundreds, if not thousands, upon single DNA strand breaks, errors that occur. We have single-stranded abnormalities. Our body is fantastic. It repairs them. Because how do we experience those, right? We see radiation from the sun as you were flying here today. We were drinking wine as we were celebrating with everything. But our body, I see the excitement right there for the wine drinking. I get it, right? (laughs) (laughs) And we want to continue to do that. So our body does wonderful things. And one of the ways it protects us is it sends a protein called PARP. PARP will then fix that single-stranded DNA break and allows the DNA to continue to replicate. But in the cancer cells of our patients, we don't want those cells to continue to replicate. So as PARP comes in and tries to fix that single-stranded DNA break, PARP is trapped, it's inhibited and not able to work. That single-stranded DNA break then becomes a double-stranded DNA break. In those patients who are BRCA positive, either germline or somatic, are not able to repair that. So those cells, one of my favorite words from nursing school still, apoptosis occurs, cell death, right? And when we talk about somatic and germline, I know I'm talking to the experts here, but let's talk about where they come from because sometimes our patients don't understand it. They don't understand the difference between, am I passing this on to my daughter? Did my mother pass this on to me? Where did this come from? Or is it just in my tumor cell? So when we look at here on my, my slide here, the, the blue patient, let's talk about her. She has a germline mutation. So her, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to lose my track. So when she came into our office, we tested her either through blood sampling or through a buccal swab or saliva testing to see if she had a BRCA mutation. Hers came out positive. This was something in her genetics that she is able to pass on to her children and kind of do it that way. Those patients, we can um, take advantage of those mutations as well. But what we found when looking at patients such as the gray patient here, she doesn't have the germline, but she has BRCA-like changes in the tumor itself. And we found by utilizing PARP, we can take advantage of those changes as well. About 25% of patients will have some sort of BRCA mutation whether it be germline, something genetically passed on from family traits, right? Or by the tumor itself. And this is why it's so important to talk to your patients about genetic testing. There's still slightly a stigma about genetic testing in some of our patient populations about, well, why do I need to know this? I don't have any children. I don't have any grandchildren. Why is it important for me to understand the genetics about it? Sometimes denial is a very comfortable place to live as well. But this is one way that we are able to see those ovarian cancers, go; those numbers go down because of genetic testing, because this goes far beyond BRCA. If you can see here, BRCA accounts for about 25% of this genetic abnormality, but actually 
50% of patients with this ovarian cancer have some sort of genetic mutation, whether it's BRCA germline or somatic, whether it's HRD pathway, looking at MMR deficiencies, looking at CDK12, looking at, you know, P10 loss. We have beyond BRCA availability for our patients to get individualized care, which they deserve, which we can take advantage of and utilize in our patients' favor. In fact, there's several ways to be able to get this. And if you look at this slide here, looking at the HRD analysis in ovarian cancer, the genetic instability score here is 42. So if you have HR deficient tumors, you have a genetic instability score or a GIS score of greater than 42, or you have a BRCA mutation, those patients who have HR proficient tumors, those genetic instability scores are less than 42. You can also get it like we just talked about, germline or somatic. And then you can also get it with these other mutations listed here, the BRIP1, RAD51. There's more to BRCA or there's more to ovarian cancer than just BRCA. All right. Patient education and resources. Again, I'd really like to thank the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. We might know them as NOC. They are available to our patients from initial diagnosis. They are for reoccurrent patients as well. I often tell my patients, and I'm sure you guys do too, stay off the internet. Right? How many times have you told your patients to stay off the internet? How many times have that worked? Not many, right? So if our patients are going to go to the internet, let's send them places that they're going to get quality information, such as the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. They are able to provide benefits to our patients. It's a reputable source of, of information. That way they can continue to get knowledgeable information that way. We'll go now to Dr. Moore. She's going to talk about delivering effective end-of-life treatment plans for gynecologic malignancy. Dr. Moore? Well, good evening, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here uh, talking about targeted therapies and advancements for women with gynecologic malignancies. Finally, uh, our patients deserve this. It's been a good year for us. We're going to start with checkpoint inhibitors, just the tip of the iceberg for the immunotherapy that's coming our way uh, to improve outcomes for patients with gynecologic cancers. Specifically, we're going to talk about endometrial and cervical cancer here, although I will hint a little bit about ovarian cancer. So the Initial kind of big, I would say, base hit to kind of triples uh, for immunotherapy happened for patients with cervical cancer and endometrial cancer. And that is summarized here on this slide. Uh, the two agents that are approved in this space uh, for endometrial, at least, are pembrolizumab or dostarlamab. Um, and for uh, cervical cancer is just um, uh, pembrolizumab, of course. And you can see on the darker blue, the pembrolizumab single indications you know, we've had this um, since 2017. So this was um, the tissue agnostic uh, approval for any tumor, including ovary, which is pretty rare, but you will find them every once in a while, that's microsatellite high um, or deficient in mismatch repair proteins. So this mainly impacted our patients with uh, uterus cancer, that 30% that harbor uh, that finding of mismatch repair deficiency. Um, this got final approval in 2023, uh, 2018 and 2021, we saw the approval in metastatic cervical cancer, uh, which was um, not as strong a signal, but in the second line metastatic setting where we basically had nothing effective, but ineffective uh, monotherapy, chemotherapy, a response rate of 14% in a duration of nine months got an accelerated approval, which also was confirmed uh, as a full approval in 2021. And then we had some kind of tweaks 
2020. In addition to microsatellite high and deficient mismatch repair, it also folded in uh, um, tumor mutation burden high, which will find those patients that don't harbor those other two mutations or other two molecular findings. They are also eligible in a tissue agnostic way uh, for treatment with pembrolizumab. Um, and then the approval in endometrial cancer that was deficient in mismatch of her proteins was confirmed in 2022. Dostarlumab has, has a more limited um, um, class of indications for no reason. It's, a, it's a, an equivalently um, good agent, just kind of came up a little bit after pembrolizumab. Um, but it is approved for in the same space, recurrent uh, or advanced endometrial cancer, second line and beyond with uh, deficient mismatch repair proteins and then also has a tissue agnostic uh, approval for deficient mismatch repair proteins in any solid tumor um, for dostarlumab. So this is the data. So this is what I alluded to in cervical cancer. So this is in a population of women with recurrent cervical cancer who had seen prior chemotherapy and then had recurred um, and whose tumors were pdl one positive. Now, this study was done in tumors irrespective of pdl one positivity, and then retrospectively, they went back and looked at the response rates amongst those tumors with pdl one positivity, and they were highest, and that's where the indication lives. And this was 100 patients, so a relatively small population, but enough to get an accelerated approval. And you can see the response rate, which is not awesome, but the median duration is so long that it warranted um, an approval. And the thing that I like to explain when I take patients through kind of this as a standard of care option versus what I might have on a clinical trial is when you tell them a response rate of 12%, they get very sad. I mean, it's such a, they're like, why should I treat with anything? You know, they really feel sad about that. And I actually draw these waterfall plots for patients and kind of show them what response rate means and then show them all the patients who got clinical benefit who aren't responses. So if your tumor shrinks by 21%, you're not a response clinical trial-wise, but your response in my eyes, as a clinician, and that's clinical benefit. And those patients can enjoy the same kind of length of disease stability as a quote-unquote responder. So I am careful when I use these terms with our patients. Um, Response rate's a clinical trial term. It's not equivalent to clinical benefit. And I think that's exemplified by this approval um, in a response rate of 12%. The clinical benefit is far higher. Uh, Keynote 158 was the big basket study, like the biggest phase one study ever done in the history of the universe for pembrolizumab in any setting, including endometrial cancer. So it was any setting with a deficient mismatch repair um, uh, status, and there were other biomarkers as well. But of course, the deficient mismatch repair status was the most um, provocative in terms of the responses. Again, this was in a recurrent population, so at least second line, but sometimes later lines. Uh, metastatic disease. So all of these patients had seen prior chemotherapy. And again, prior to this approval, just like cervical cancer, there really wasn't this idea of second and third line treatment for endometrial cancer. You know, Honestly, these patients just died. We did not have active therapies for them as we do now. We're actually finally getting to a place where we talk about fourth line treatment for endometrial cancer. That was not a thing when this was um, announced. So this was a big win for our patients, at least for those who are uh, deficient mismatch repair status. And you can see here the response rate's 
I'll remind you that the response rate for the standard of care, which is um, doxorubicin or weekly paclitaxel in large phase three studies is 15%. So to go from that to 50% was orders of magnitude better. And so this is very quickly and appropriately became available um, to our patients in the standard of care. And then dostarlamab came up a, a little bit later, but very similar, very consistent results, again, in a deficient mismatch repair post-chemotherapy endometrial cancer population with a response rate of 45.5%, so virtually the same. And what you're seeing on the right-hand side of this slide is what we call swim lane plots. And that's just sort of shows all the little dots, shows you those tumors that responded by recessed response. Um, and then the horizontal lines show you the amount of time the patient stayed on study. And all the, all the bars with an arrow on the end indicate patients who are still receiving dostarlamab at the cut point of the trial. And so you can see we're out to 60 weeks. That's a long time for recurrent endometrial cancer to be on an active drug. And patients were out to 204 weeks and still ongoing. So a very active medication and appropriately FDA approved in this indication. So that is great. It's kind of like, you know, PARP inhibitors and BRCA, which we'll talk a little bit about. You say, yay, this is a great win. We must test. We must know this biomarker. But what about everyone else? Because most patients aren't, um, don't, their tumors are not deficient in mismatch repair proteins. They're mostly microsatellite stable, just like most patients with ovarian cancer are BRCA wild type. So how do we kind of advance the field for them? And in both of those scenarios, the answer is with combinations. And there's a lot of research ongoing that we could spend hours talking about, um, which I won't do. Don't worry. Um, but the, 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 big, the big ones are uh, combinations of immune checkpoint inhibitors with anti-angiogenic agents. You know, we all know bevacizumab and then also tyrosine kinase inhibitors. There's clear synergy for a number of reasons that have been pre-clinically demonstrated and then clinically demonstrated as we have active and FDA-approved combinations now. There's a lot of rationale for PARP inhibitors and immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, PARP inhibitors cause DNA damage, which uh, leads to um, damaged DNA exiting the nucleus and going to the cytosol, which activates the sting pathway, the stimu stimulation of interferon gene pathway. That activation should synergize with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So there's a lot of studies with combinations. And then also chemotherapy. Certain chemotherapies are synergistic with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So any one of these strategies, maybe in a tumor that mismatch repair deficient would make it work better, and in a patient that's uh, tumor is mismatch repair proficient or microsatellite stable, maybe it would make them respond better than the 15% sort of dismal outcome we see with chemotherapy. So did it work? Yes. So the first kind of big win here was uh, the combination of linvatinib, uh, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and pembrolizumab. This was studied by my good friend, Dr. Vicki Mocker from Memorial Sloan Kettering. She led the accelerated approval, which you can see in 2019, and then the large randomized phase three study, which I'll show you in, in a moment, which was um, Keynote, one, Keynote 775 in uh, recurrent metastatic uh, endometrial cancer and it actually allowed patients to come on that were mismatch repair deficient, but because of the approval for pembrolizumab, very few did. It was predominantly a study done, both of them, in tumors that were mismatch repair um, proficient and um, led to these accelerated approvals uh, and confirmed approval in why. 
because of this. I'm just going to show you the confirmed approval. This is the randomized study, Keynote 775, second line endometrial cancer. So they've had chemo, recurred, as unfortunately they all do, because chemotherapy is not curative in the metastatic or recurrent setting. Uh, and then they were randomized to LENPEM or chemotherapy, doxorubicin, or weekly paclitaxel. Those are our standards of care. And the blue bar is what you see with LENPEM for PFS, progression-free survival on the left, and overall survival on the right. How, we do not show overall survival advantages very often in gynecologic cancers. And this was a 30% reduction in the hazard of death with use of LENPEM uh, in the second line. So a very active uh, regimen, and this very quickly became the standard of care. So for tumors that are mismatch repair deficient, we use monotherapy pembrolizumab. For those that are mismatch repair proficient, we use LENPEM, and that is the current standard for second-line um, endometrial for now. So we'll talk about what's coming. Um, so now we're moving things to frontline and we're also expanding on these combinations. I'm going to show you this is in cervical cancer. I showed you the, the data, Kino uh, 158, kind of modest, but still impressive results in the second line. What happens when you move it to first line metastatic with chemo as a combination? Will you improve overall survival markedly? So this is Keynote 826. This was presented uh, in 2021 and very rapidly became FDA approved for kind of the first treatment for metastatic or recurrent disease. In pdl one positive tumors only, you can see the advantage of um, adding pembrolizumab to chemotherapy. Paclitaxel and carboplatin is the backbone uh, over placebo. Now, placebo, they were getting chemo still. They just didn't get pembrolizumab. So this, it's an active control arm. And you can see the hazard ratio is 0.62, so almost a 40% reduction in, in the hazard of risk for progression. And then you can see almost the same benefit for overall survival. It's almost a 40% reduction in the risk of death with the addition of pembrolizumab. And so this was a big win for our patients. And it's the standard of care for those who are biomarker positive and otherwise eligible for, um, for pembrolizumab. Of course, there's those that have autoimmune disorders where we're uh, limited in using this. And still the standard of care would be paclitaxel, carboplatin, and bevacizumab. Um, but for those who are eligible, we add on pembrolizumab to that backbone. And then we're doing the same thing in endometrial. So this was just presented a few weeks ago at the SGO uh, annual meeting. Two studies, one um, uh, uh, done within the NCI and one done by um, GSK, uh, both of which incorporated uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors with chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone in the first metastatic treatment of uh, advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer. The studies are similar, but not exactly the same. And I, we don't have enough time to really go through all the nuances, but they aren't the exact same study in terms of statistical design and inclusion, but they're very similar. And they're very similar in their findings, which is always nice to see consistent. So this is the NCI study. This is um, the phase three study we call NRGGY018, and it's chemotherapy, paclitaxel, carboplatin, with or without pembrolizumab. Uh, in all comers. And it was had two primary endpoints, one in the mismatch repair deficient cohort and one in the mismatch repair proficient cohort. So they were um, separately powered to look at each endpoint. And each endpoint is very positive. You can see that here, especially in the deficient mismatch repair uh, cohort. And this you could have expected. Remember, I showed you in the in the recurrent setting 
second line setting your response rate was 50%. It's phenomenal. And patients were like staying on that for a really long time. So I think we could have predicted this. And we'll have to follow these patients for longer, but it may be the situation like we have in BRCA-associated ovarian cancer with PARP in the front line. We may have cured some of these patients uh, who heretofore were never in the realm of cure. We'll see. At the very least, we have markedly um, prolonged the disease-free survival because this um, embolizumab is stopped at two years. And so we'll see as we stop the pembrolizumab how long patients go off all therapy without recurrence. Uh, I predict it will be uh, quite a remarkable finding in this cohort. In the mismetropere proficient, you do see a statistically and clinically relevant improvement in progression-free survival. It's about a 46% reduction in the hazard of progression. So that's notable. Um, it's not as strong, but still pretty notable. And I think warrants, um, in my opinion, an indication in both subsets, but we'll see how the FDA interprets this. So this is not FDA approved yet. It will be submitted and we'll have to see. Although I'll tell you, a lot of us are already adding this, at least in our biomarker positive patients. In my opinion, it's almost unethical not to try looking at those survival curves. And if you don't believe one study, here's the second one. This is Ruby with dostarlamab and chemotherapy. This was powered in the mismatch repair deficient population and then in the intention to treat population. So it combined the two groups. It's not separately powered in the mismatch repair proficient group. That's an exploratory endpoint. So it's one of the key differences between the two studies. This is a much smaller trial, but be, you can say that. But this is the mismatch repair deficient cohort um, with a remarkable improvement. And, and you like to see these curves where they become horizontal because that means your event rate has almost stopped. And this has about two years of follow-up. And so you're not seeing patients recur. You see the initial drop-off. So there's some patients who are incredibly high risk for other reasons, um, but then it just levels off. And so we hope that that's just patients cruising on dostarlamab. This one goes out to three years and then they stop. And then we'll see what long-term follow-up looks like but these curves, you could drive a truck through. Um, it's just a no-brainer that this should be the standard of care for this particular um, biomarker-selected group. And there's other uh, things we haven't seen yet. These are all maturing. So Keynote C93 is really asking the question, well, do we need chemo at all? We might, you know, if it's synergistic. We might, but we might not. Maybe we just need immune checkpoint inhibitor in a mismatch repair deficient tumor. So it's Pembro versus chemo. Now, this, um, and this is a great study, and it's been ongoing for a bit, but with the readout of those two trials, it's going to be a little bit hard if your patient gets randomized to chemo with no immune checkpoint inhibitor. So we're kind of worried about this study, but it is very important to finish because if we don't need chemo, who, what patient wants it? So this is an important study to see if we can get rid of chemo. The Domenica study is a very similar dostarlamab versus chemo in a mismatch repair population. This is XUS. And then for those tumors that are mismatch repair proficient, it's LENPEM versus chemo. And this study is completed and maturing, and we may hear a readout on that this year. The other two are a little bit earlier. So this is all coming and really may change the standard of care. As you heard about always uh, or, um, in the last talk, and I always just like to mention this, especially um, to you all who often are seeing patients for the physician or patients in survivorship that might be at risk for recurrence, her, knowing HER2 status is, is a must for papillary serous tumors. 
and it is becoming likely a must for anyone who's at risk for recurrence with the um, emergence of these antibody drug conjugates. You all know uh, the data from breast very well. We are seeing that replicating right now in endometrial cancer and HER2 low. The data will be seen at a meeting. It was just announced, so I can finally say, um, Destiny Pantumer will be at ASCO with an endometrial and a cervical cohort in HER2 positive endometrial, but not just the high HER2. And I think you're going to see um, this class of drugs move into endometrial really quickly. So we're really going to have to know and catch up testing on patients that we're following right now uh, in, in the clinic so that we know who is eligible for these antibody conjugates because they are really effective. Um, and it's very exciting to see them quickly moving into the endometrial space. Right now, we have an ongoing study for true HER2 highs, so HER2 uh, IHC 3-plus or 2-plus-ish positive with trastuzumab and pertuzumab with chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone and advanced recurrent uh, uterine papillary serous carcinoma. This is a really important study. And again, how does this compare to the mismatch repair proficient data with immune checkpoint inhibitors? These are largely MSS mismatch repair proficient tumors. Um, They don't overlap a whole lot with mismatch repair deficient. So it's in that group with pretty good efficacy, but HER2 may be better. And so we're really going to have to sort this out to individualize the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. Uh, And this study is ongoing uh, currently. And I'll turn over to PARP inhibitors. PARP inhibitors, I think you know, these have been around for a few years now. Uh, These are approved in the front line, and the front line is the place where you want to be using them, Um, not only because they're most effective, but because it's a time-limited use of PARP, two years or three years. We're not using them ad nauseum in the recurrent setting until patients recur and develop secondary malignancies. So the front line is really where we use these, and these are the studies that really paved the way for um, PARP inhibitor use in BRCA-associated cancers with SOLA1, um, and then all comers uh, from the PRIMA study and then from Paola1, uh, which had bevacizumab and olaparib, and I'll show you these studies. This is SOLA1, which I had the privilege of leading, um, which was amazing. You know, we launched this in 2013, and patients did so well that we had to like sort of just make a new statistical plan in 2019 to just look at it because patients were doing so great. And you can see that here. We've looked at it at five years of follow-up and now seven years of follow-up. And at seven years, we have about 44% of the patients randomized to olaparib still disease-free and recurrence-free. And we stopped the olaparib at two years. So the majority of those patients are likely cured. And so with 20% of patients who didn't get anything who are still disease-free. And so there are a population of women uh, with BRC-associated ovarian cancer who don't recur and they don't need any PARP, but we cannot tell who they are at this point. Um, And so we're going to over-treat that 20% to rescue another 25% who are likely going to be cured. And then we markedly improved the progression-free survival for uh, much of the rest of the cohort, although there's still work to be done because we had 56% of our population eventually recur. At seven years overall survival, you can see here, uh, is markedly better. Uh, and so this is really the standard of care for BRCA-associated cancer uh, in the front line following chemotherapy. Prima tested this hypothesis in all comers uh, in a very clinically high-risk population, like 70% received neoadjuvant chemo, like 40% were stage 4, 35% 
only had a partial response at the end of chemo. So very clinically high-risk group. So these curves look different. The shape looks different, but there's a reason for that. But you see in the top in the homologous recombination deficient cohort, which includes the BRCA cohort, plus in another 20% who are BRCA wild type HRD positive, we um, reduce the hazard for progression by almost 50%, uh, which is notable. Um, and then in the intention to treat arm in the bottom, you can see the all comers um, reduction was about 34%, which is why this uh, has an all comers indication and is not restricted at this point to uh, biomarkers. Athenomono is rucaparib, which is another very good PARP inhibitor. Um, the Athenomono study was read out and published in 2022 is very consistent with Prima in terms of the hazard ratios. I mean, it's almost identical really about a 53% reduction in the HRD positive group and about a 48% reduction in the ITT group. Um, this agent um, uh, has been a little unstable in terms of access, but was just purchased by another company. And so we think it's actually going to be available again for use. And it's a nice PARP inhibitor because there's so many dose levels that you can use for dose modifications. So I hope that it's an option for our patients because it's certainly warranted based on this um, level of data. Combinations, just like immune checkpoint inhibitors, gosh, everything's made better by an anti-angiogenic agent, I swear. So, including PARP inhibitors. So, PARP inhibitors plus any anti-angiogenic work better than PARP inhibitors alone. So, this is the Paula study. The Paula study was done in XUS. Um, XUS, there are a lot more restrictions on how targeted agents are used and in what line. Um, it's not like the U.S. where we can kind of use kind of whatever we want, whenever we want, most of the time. Um, in much of Europe, bevacizumab is limited to a line of therapy, and you get it once, except in Germany. So um, there's many parts of Europe where you can only use it in the front line, Israel, France. You can only use it in the front line. And so they didn't want to give up their bevacizumab. So they said, well, if I'm using bevacizumab, what happens if I add olaparib to it or not? So that was the Paula study. It was an intention to treat um, um, analysis. It's actually an, what's called an investigator-initiated trial. It was never meant to be an FDA registration study or it would have had the missing arm, which is the olaparib alone arm. So it's just olaparib, bevacizumab versus bevacizumab stratified by BRCA. Um, and so there's exploratory cohorts from this study, including HRD. These are non-analytic, but the FDA still used them to make judgments about what would be available here in the U.S., which is interesting in the topic of another talk, um, maybe when I've had wine. But here's, um, here's this exploratory non-analytic um, endpoints in the HRD group, including BRCA on the left. Um, the hazard ratio is 0.33. So that's pretty phenomenal. Solo 1 was 0.3. So versus bevacizumab, which is an active control. Now, this was done before Solo read out because you never would put a patient with BRCA on bevacizumab. That would be a no alone. Um, and there's no olaparib alone arm. So we can't really judge how much better olaparib bev is versus olaparib. So you have to make inferences here. But this looks pretty nice, especially if it's pulling up that BRCA wild type HRD subset, which some of us think it is. Um, and you can see the OS was reported um, at ESMO last year for the BRCA population at five years. And it looks very similar to what we see in solo. So we like this opportunity for Practices where bevacizumab use is common, you can layer on olaparib and you have good efficacy and safety data to justify that. Um, 
But if you're in a practice that doesn't use bevacizumab and you have a BRCA-associated cancer, you can feel pretty confident about using um, olaparib alone. So this is sort of a can-use but not must-use option. Um, there are ongoing studies that uh, I didn't have time to put in here that are asking the question of olaparib or norapirib versus olaparib or versus norapirib to really see how much synergy is there versus just additive benefit. And those will read out in a few years um, and we'll have an answer. There is data for norapirib as I just alluded to. There's ongoing randomized studies, but this is a single arm study uh, that's led by my good friend, um, Melissa Hardesty, uh, who practices in Alaska that just gives us some safety data uh, for norapirib bevacizumab and it is safe um, to use and appears effective uh, in both homologous recombination deficient. You can see it in the blue and that includes um, BRCA. In the green are the homologous recombination, like the test sort of failed and so you don't really know, but probably most of them are homologous recombination deficient. And then in the maroon, you see the homologous recombination proficient group, but there's no control arm here. And so that will be forthcoming. Um, these are the frontline studies that are pending. You're going to start seeing these read out. They're all just like the endometrial studies. They all seem like the same thing, but they're all very different questions of PARP, bevacizumab, and an immune checkpoint inhibitor. So trip, the potential of triplet maintenance versus doublet maintenance in frontline ovarian cancer. Um, they all have different biomarkers and different stratification factors. So they're very different studies, even though you look at them and, and you think it's all the same. Um, Duo-O will be presented at ASCO, uh, and they did have a press release that the combination with Dervalumab had an improved PFS over um, Olaparib alone. So we'll have to see what that data looks like uh, at ASCO to see if that's going to move into really the first opportunity to use immune checkpoint inhibitors in ovary because we haven't really had a win there to date. Um, Keylink and FIRST are still maturing, but we may see them later this year, early next year. And then just to transition to something totally different in terms of combinations, because you may see this coming. This um, the, the registration study for this will read out this year, we think. But tumor treatment fields are totally different. I'm going to show you a picture of it in a moment. Um, have any of, do any of you take care of GBM and have used um, a couple of you? So you know what this is. You kind of wear it on your head. It's, these, it's very interesting. So you kind of wear these pads um, that have um, charged fields. And the charged fields, these tumor treatment fields, are these alternating electrical fields, and they impact cells that are in mitosis. So kind of like paclitaxel, but it's not paclitaxel. It would be synergistic with something that would impact microtubules. Um, and so I'll show you in a minute the study that is the registration trials in combination with paclitaxel in the recurrent setting. But they've gone back and done a number of preclinical trials and they're listed here. They were at AACR this year, just last week, two weeks ago actually. Um, and SGO last year were the mice were treated with tumor treatment fields and a PARP inhibitor. And there appears to be very significant synergy um, for reasons that make sense once they explain the mouse models too, but initially you're like, how would that work? But it may actually be more synergistic than with paclitaxel. So these preclinical models are moving into clinical trials, and you may see these in combinations with PARP inhibitors. Um, it is approved already in GBM and for pleural mesothelioma. The phase two innovate study was done in ovarian cancer, single-arm study. They're always hard to um, interpret a single-arm study 
but these patients uh, that had platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, multiply treated lines of therapy, had immune overall survival um, that hadn't been reached um, in this clinical trial. Like it went long beyond a year, which was sort of the benchmark when the trial was done, which was a number of years ago. And so that led to the phase three Innovate study, which is weekly paclitaxel versus PAC plus the tumor treating fields. And the endpoint here is overall survival. And this is close to reading out. And you can see in the picture on the, your right what this looks like for patients. They wear these pads all around their abdomen for like 18 hours a day. And they kind of carry a backpack that keeps it charged. And when they're sitting in their office, they can plug it in. Um, and the backpacks keep getting smaller if this really is going to work. The biggest side effect is rash which is what you guys will see if this really comes into wide-scale use is um, managing the derm toxicity. Otherwise, it's super well-tolerated, um, but you have to manage the rash. So stay tuned for this. This may be kind of our first device um, in ovarian cancer, which is kind of exciting. So this is the decision-making algorithm right now for first-line maintenance. It's just gotten really complicated. Um, when I was a f early faculty in 2004, it's been, oh, gosh, I'm getting old. We just gave Taxol Carbo to everybody. We operated on everybody. We gave them Taxol Carbo. That's all the thought. We weren't even testing for BRAFCA at that point widely, unless you had a family history and all the nonsense we used to do before we actually tested every person as we should be. So test everybody. We do all the tumor testing. We do the germline testing. When do you operate? Primary or interval? The goal of surgery is very clear. It's no gross residual or you shouldn't be going. Do you add bevacizumab, yes or no? And the decision about bevacizumab impacts sort of where you go in this algorithm for maintenance. If you don't use bevacizumab, which is fine, and, you, and then you don't need a biomarker, you can use a PARP if you want to. You can use a PARP in any setting. If you do use bevacizumab, you have to be HRD or BRCA to use a PARP. Um, uh, and if you're not, if you're HRP, you would just continue the bevacizumab. So that decision for bevacizumab kind of informs that part of the pathway that you go down um, when the patient's finished with chemotherapy. And then if we have an immune checkpoint inhibitor, it's just going to need a second page for this algorithm. But choices are good for patients. So I'm going to turn it over to um, uh, Kimberly Camp, who is a gynoc nurse practitioner at Duke, where my friend Angelus worked. Yes. Yeah. Um, my good friend and SGO incoming president, Angelus Alvarez Secord, uh, who's going to talk about strategies to maximize treatment benefits and deliver optimal patient centered care. Thank you. So I'm Kim. I'm a GYN oncology nurse practitioner. I've been doing this for 15 years. And like Dr. Moore said, she's a hard lady to follow, first of all. I know of her. She probably doesn't know too much about me. But um, the interesting thing is how GYN oncology has changed. And with the changes in the new therapies, guess what changes also? Our nursing care. So, you know, nurses in GYN oncology bring a lot to the table. I love my nurses and I'm very much a nurse advocate and a nurse first. If there's anybody who needs an IV, I'm the girl. Um, I'm always saying, come, come get me. Um, but what you have to know is you have to be able to understand the mechanism of action of all these different therapies, which Dr. Moore did a great job explaining. And interpreting it so that the patient can understand it and breaking it down. And I think that in oncology, we do a good job of that. 
And what we also do a good job of is being gatekeepers, right? We are the people who help patients, families navigate from one treatment to the next or one therapy, radiation, chemo, whatever it may be. And, and so I look at our nursing as a very specialized area. And a nurse is not a nurse is not a nurse anymore. Uh, when you think about nursing perspectives and you think about all these different agents, you have to think about routes of administration. And I know in our practice, when oral therapies came along, it became really important for the infusion team or the infusion nurses to know about those oral therapies to be able to manage the side effects and to try to tease out where the problem was, you know, coming from, the, the side effects. The dosing schedules can be very different. You can give Caxol Carbo, you know, every three weeks. You can give it dose dense. So understanding what the schedule is and antiemetics and all those different things really make you the expert in taking care of the patient. And, you know, they rely on you to let them know when they need to come back, when do they need to get their labs checked and different things like that. And with these new therapies, we have to be able to try to anticipate what will happen. And we'll look a little bit about some of those side effects here in just a few minutes. So immune-related adverse events for checkpoint inhibitors can affect any organ. What's the biggest organ that we have? Skin, yes. And so, you know, I always consider checkpoint inhibitors the itis drug or drugs because they can cause inflammation of any organ in the body. And, and that's where sometimes it becomes challenging to figure out exactly what the cause is. But the bottom line is usually treatment involves some form of a steroid generally. Um, where that's different is thyroiditis. A lot of times their thyroid burns out and then they become hypothyroid. And then we obviously treat them with um, levothyroxine. So when do you anticipate immune-related adverse events? When do they happen? And this is just a graph that shows a rough estimate of when you can expect skin toxicities or colitis or pneumonitis. But really, in all honesty, they can happen anytime, and they can happen even after they've stopped the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, I had a lady yesterday, wait, the day before yesterday, because I came yesterday. Anyways, um, that sent a message through Imbasket and said, I'm having really dark, like bright yellow urine. I'm itchy. My stool is pale. And I'm like, oh, Lord. And you know, I went back and looked and she hasn't been on an immune checkpoint inhibitor probably for three or four weeks. And she was on it for a significant amount of time. And then you think her liver, what's going on? Um, so those are things that, you know, knowing the history and what treatment they've had and it kind of being able to put on your investigative hat to figure out what's going on. Um, Immune-related adverse events, grading and management, you can look at, there's a lot of different sources or resources out there. You know, 
I would never want to try to memorize what a grade one, a grade two, grade three, four, what all those different treatments are for, let's say, you know, dermatological rash or side effects. You can always, you know, use your resources and and go to those, whether it's the NCCN, SGO, um, ONS. There's a variety of different resources that will help you be able to navigate how to manage these side effects and exactly how serious they are. And part of being able to tease out side effects is really looking at the agents that the patient is receiving. So when you think about, Dr. Moore talked about levatinib and um, Pembro, you, you think about both of those and you can see in the green here that there is actually overlapping of side effects, right? So you say, well, this lady came in and she's having diarrhea. How am I going to figure out whether it's related to colitis or is it related to the, the TKI, the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, because that's a classic side effect for tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And you can look, and in this nice little red box right here, it gives you the answer. It says, you know what? The half-life is about 28 hours for levatinib. So if you hold the levatinib for a couple days and the diarrhea gets better, then it's likely related to the Pembro, if it's, you know, continues on. And diarrhea, it looks a little different with immune checkpoint inhibitors than levatinib. You know, it can be bloody, it can be um, more persistent, painful, that kind of thing. So, as I mentioned, here is ASCO, the NCCN, SGO, um, all of these different guidelines that you can use to, to kind of help tease out side effects and how to manage them. I will say that it's really important when you start using these agents or you've been using them to identify specialists in other areas. So like dermatology or endocrinology, rheumatology. I work at a big institution, obviously. So sometimes getting a response right away is difficult. Um, I know I'm not the only one. So with that being said, what we did is we identified key people in each of those specialties that would be willing to help us and then worked on e-consults and they would give us feedback what to do right away until the patient could get in and be seen. So triage, triage tools, you know, there are a variety of those as well. I think the most important thing is keeping track of what the patient calls about and having a standardized way of documenting it. Because it's awful hard if you're documenting it, it's ending up in different places or you're documenting it and you're not collecting the same information. And then it's just a mess. Um, and again, our same organizations have guidelines for the, NC the NCCN, the ASCO guidelines for triage and have some really great examples and ideas if that was something that you needed to, um, you know, take home as far as being able to create these standardized notes. So supporting effective communication among multidisciplinary and multi-professional healthcare teams, I think it's really important 
as you, the nurse, to educate the patient and let them know what to expect up front. Nobody likes to be last minute told, oh, by the way, you're gonna, we're going to start maintenance treatment and your maintenance treatment is going to be for two years. And they're like, what? Um, and, and believe it or not, it does happen. It, we have patients who transfer their care and sometimes come from other places. And we say, well, this is what we would recommend. And they haven't heard about it. So sometimes it takes a little bit of, you know, time to digest that. Um, you want to maintain your expertise with other clinical specialists, like we talked about. Referrals are very important. We don't manage in our practice, we don't manage like thyroiditis or hypothyroidism. We really rely on our endocrine friends to help us. Um, and then it's most important, I think, for nurses to be able to navigate their patients between points of care because it gets very confusing to, to go from chemo to radiation back to chemo and, and just understanding what it is and what's happening. So common adverse events with PARP inhibitors, I will tell you the three top side effects are anemia, nausea, and fatigue. Those are, are the biggest. But what you probably hear a lot about is MDS or AML, and that is a, definitely a side effect. It is rare, um, along with pneumonitis. That is not really common. But what happens, I think it's challenging because they can come in with shortness of breath, they're fatigued, they don't feel well, and you check their labs and you say, oh, well, their hemoglobin looks great. There's nothing wrong with their labs, but they have this cough and they, they don't feel well. That should raise a little red flag or your antenna should go up and be like, hmm, is there something going on, you know, respiratory-wise? And it's very easy to get a chest X-ray to check that out. The other, one of the other parts, um, the specific side effect is thrombocytopenia. And and it can be significant. So that's something where you want to definitely check their labs every week, initially when starting treatment, at least for the first month, and kind of allow them to kind of get to a coasting point where their counts are good, and then you can check them monthly. And once you reach a year, then periodically. Here's the dosing for Olaparib. It's 300 milligrams twice a day. Um, and depending on their side effects, you can dose, um, reduce if needed. A lot of times, honestly, if you interrupt the dose initially and wait for the symptoms to calm down or improve and then restart at that same dose, the patient does quite well. Um, and you can always try... And if the dose interruption doesn't work, then dose reduce. And rarely do patients have to come off of therapy. Um, and there aren't a lot of situations where you have to modify the dose. One of those is moderate renal um, insufficiency. And that's the dose you would want to start with. It's 200 milligrams, if that was the case. And you got to think about I said the top side effects were nausea, anemia, and fatigue. When you think about 
nausea. Other drugs that we use, we do, you know, sometimes we give it at night. Sometimes, you know, that's helpful. They sleep through the nausea. And you can do the same thing with these agents as well. And just like everything, don't have them eat grapefruit or Seville oranges because, you know, the CYP3A inhibitor business, it's just easier to say, take grapefruit out of your diet. Um, then Neraparib is a once daily dosing and it's 300 milligrams a day. And what was interesting about Neraparib is when we started using it early on, we started seeing that patients had, certain patients had severe thrombocytopenia. And so there was an analysis where they went and they looked at these women who were having problems uh, with thrombocytopenia. And they found that women who weighed less than 77 kilograms or their platelet count with less than 150,000 seemed to be most susceptible. So those were the women that we started at 200 instead of 300, and they did much, much better. Um, you also have to take into account looking at not only their nausea and managing that, but hypertension and cardiovascular risks. And so monitoring blood pressure at home is important. And, you know, we have them do that fairly often for the first two months, and then they can start spacing it out. Um, I will say that the specific drug that really causes hypertension is the, T the TKI, the levatinib, um, and that can happen very quickly. So patient and professional communication, you want to educate the patient about the big picture, let them know what to expect, and then you want them to be able to contact you, make sure that they know that if there's any issues that you want to hear from them and encourage them to call sooner than later. That doesn't seem to be a problem with my patients. They call quite a bit. Um, the last thing is equipping them, giving them what they need up front. If they need, you know, you know they're going to have nausea, make sure they have their antiemetics. If you know that there's going to be problems with diarrhea, instruct them how to use their antidiarrheals. And a lot of times what you may say may be different than what's on the back of the box. So make sure that they're aware that they need to take, you know, more than usually what's listed if that's how you're, you know, treating their symptoms. And then engaging the patient in shared decision-making. To me, this is a no-brainer because honestly... Nobody likes to be told what to do. And I think as adults, we like to understand the rationale of why are we doing something. And so presenting them with options and letting them think about it, telling them, you know, risks and benefits and letting them come to a conclusion about what they feel works best for their lifestyle. You have a lot better buy-in and they're a lot more compliant. So, you know, being a nurse, our role in shared decision-making is really advocating for the patient, making sure they understand what's happening. There's a lot of times, you know, they'll be getting ready for surgery and they'll be talking about risks and benefits. And then the physician leaves and they'll say, can you explain that to me? Can you tell me what that was? And, you know, so it's, 
it's just breaking it down to a level that they can understand. And obviously, patients have very different educational levels. So um, meeting them where they are at their point. And then support systems are so important. Um, I know Kim talked about the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. And I had a patient this week, actually, who came in and it was her third cycle of uh, chemotherapy. And she was usually very stoic and doesn't show a lot of emotion, but her eyes were watery. And I said, are you in a, a funk? And she said, huh? I said, you know, do you feel sad? Do you feel overwhelmed? Like, you know, things are just out of your control. And she, she got big tears and she said, yeah, I really do. She said, I went online to look for some support groups. And I said, well, you know what? I can help you with that. So it can be something, you know, very simple as long as you, she didn't want to tell me, but I had to, you know, bring it out and say, what's going on here? And support groups are very important. Um, so the other thing that's extremely important are clinical trials. And you know, when patients recur, that's one of the first things we offer if, is a clinical trial. And we look at it from the standpoint of we don't have a cure for cancer. We're still looking. We're still trying. We're getting better, obviously, by some of the data that you heard Dr. Moore talk about. But it's, it's definitely not a home run yet. And so uh, and some patients really feel like they're helping others, and that's what really, you know, makes them want to, like, pursue doing a clinical trial or for their own personal benefit because it's usually a therapy they wouldn't normally see otherwise. So, um, and, you know, I think Kim talked about the disparities in women who, you know, um, black women who have a much usually worst prognosis because they are diagnosed at a later stage. And those are also women that are the least um, represented in clinical trials. So here are friends, the, the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition um, provides a lot of resources for patients, nurses, and caregivers. And you can see that there's a 24-7 online support forum for women and a lot of women want to talk to somebody else who's going through the same thing that they are. And they compare notes. I used to always find that interesting in the infusion room when they would sit next to each other just by happenstance, and then they would share their stories. Um, and then peer-to-peer -peer online support is also a service that they offer. And I think just making it known that there are these resources available they have extensive libraries of information. They can assist with meal delivery um, and so, so many opportunities that a lot of times in this day and age, patients really need help with. We're going to go through just a couple of case, um, case studies here that actually incorporate a lot of the questions that you guys have been asking. So I really appreciate the really good questions and we should be able to answer them in, in most of these case studies here. Our first case study here is Janet. Janet is a 57-year-old black woman. She's an elementary school teacher. She enjoys gardening and travel. Um, she presented with her to her gynecologist with postmenopausal bleeding. 
right? Kind of standard what we kind of look at. Uh, her gynecologist did an endometrial biopsy, looking at grade three endometrial adenocarcinoma as her diagnosis. They did a CT scan. Um, her comorbidities, and this is what we're going to kind of keep in mind, she's obese, she has type 2 diabetes, she has um, hyper or dyslipidemia. Both are actually well controlled on medications. She ends up having surgery, but unfortunately, you know, Janet is diagnosed at a stage 4B. So it's a pretty advanced kind of cancer diagnosis. So I'm going to go to my, my nursing panel here of experts, and I'm going to ask Dr. Moore, Looking at this information, what would you suggest the biomarker testing be for this patient, Ms. Janet? So uh, right out of the kind of from the pathologist, we would be wanting, of course, the you, you see it here, the grade and the histology. But histology is becoming a little less important. I would want for sure mismatch repair protein status. Um, and uh, in this patient, I'd be also adding on HER2 status because she's likely TP53 altered. Uh, so we get TP53, mismetropair. That's the key one right now that you can act on. But then we also add in HER2, and we'd be sending this for next-gen sequencing just for follow, follow-up things if we need later. So before even you know that first drop of treatment is in, these are going behind the scenes. Is that what you're saying? Well, we're, yeah. So we're planning. You know, she's had surgery, so she has to recover a little bit from that. So we really want to have all the information kind of at our disposal. It's annoying when you have to, but sometimes you do, you have to start chemo and then you add things on as the biomarkers come back because patients have to get treated pretty quickly. But it's nice to have everything at the beginning so you, you can counsel someone in full. But yeah, we're really, and as someone who's stage 4B, um, the pathologist will give us um, a number of the biomarkers and then we would send that off subsequently for next gen. Um, but that doesn't really influence our plan unless, and the reason we do that is because sometimes they'll be mismatched or pair proficient, but they will have tumor mutation burden high. That can happen. Um, it's rare, but it can happen, and you want to catch those because those patients should be getting immune checkpoint inhibitors now. And then, depending on her family history, but there's, you know, we always look for zebras, but you know, uh, MSH6 is um, associated with Lynch, and it's really hard to detect on IHC. And so in the ideal world, you're reflexing your mismatch repair proficient for MSI, so you're catching those MSI high, but mismatch repair proficient um, patients, because all of those would kind of fall under that rubric of immune checkpoint inhibitor. So we yeah, we do all the things to try and make sure we know how to treat someone. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. As we continue with Janet here, right, her, she has her surgery. And as like Dr. Morris told us, she did have some genetic testing. She had IHC, let's re, or IHC revealed her um, MMR deficiency with that loss of that MLH1 and PMSA2. So Janet is now very overwhelmed. And you guys can imagine being diagnosed with the stage 4B cancer putting yourself in her shoes, what are Janet's questions do you think that are running through her mind and how can we help Janet with this situation? So Kim, tell me how you would help Janet kind of go through the education of these medications. How would you talk to Janet about her options for immune checkpoint inhibitors or, you know, chemotherapy at this point? I would just let her, you know, understand that the side effects are different. Chemotherapy side effects, you know, they may last a week up to 10 days. And 
we have somewhat of a timeline knowing when they're going to happen and and then what we expect them to improve prior to them starting their next line or their next cycle. But with immune, with immune therapy, it's much harder. Some patients do great and never have any toxicities, whereas, you know, others, it may be six, ten weeks into therapy and they may start having issues. All right. So who in here is the one who answers the phone when these patients call? Do you guys have designated... I need to write every one of you a letter saying you deserve a raise, right? I will bring you Starbucks, whatever you need, because you guys are our first line of defense when patients like Janet call in before they come to to Kim or Kimberly, whichever way you want to kind of talk to us that way. (laughs) So, Dr. Moore, is there a difference in how you treat Janet because she is already diabetic and you want to add an immune checkpoint inhibitor to this? No, Um, but you do have to be careful. And I think this is a place where sometimes... Even, like, honestly, physicians will miss this. And so having all eyes thinking about this and navigators or kind of however you run your practice is really important. So no, you know, she's going to get chemotherapy and we're going to give her, what, steroids before she... That's the biggest risk to her diabetes is we're going to really screw up her well-controlled diabetes with the steroids that we give ahead of the paclitaxel, which you have to do. And so there's all the modifications around that. So even without... An immune checkpoint inhibitor, we should do a study on this, but I really feel like we sort of put someone's glycemic control into disarray and it's hard for them to get it back under control post-chemo. I kind of feel like it just, we really just screw it up. But on top of that, with immune checkpoint inhibitors, they are associated with new onset diabetes, which she already has, but it can be associated with worsening diabetes depending on the mechanism by which she has diabetes. And so you really have to track and sort of make decisions about, you know, is this sort of the normal fluctuation in glycemic control that I see in someone that's getting steroids every three weeks and potentially as antiemetics, you know, if they're having difficulties? Or is this different? You know, is she sort of just going up, 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 up? Or is there like a big step up in her her sugars that can't be explained by other things? Uh, then, then I do get worried and I have endocrinology sort of weigh in um, on on what could be going on. So I think you brought up consultants are really key here because oncologists can, you know, I'm not an endocrinologist. I'm not a neurologist. You know, I need my part, none pulmonologist, all the things that these drugs can do other than kill the cancer. We need help. So I'm pretty quick to involve endocrine, but you do have to pay attention here. It is difficult. Perfect. Thank you. And I I will say too that Patients with diabetes, it's it's a struggle too because they you want them to check their blood sugar more often, and a lot of times they're just not they don't want to have that, um, you know. So endocrine sometimes is helpful too with you know their they have the continuing monitoring devices that they can use, um, and patients are, from my experience, more apt to do that than to actually you know, do the classic poking your it's finger. It's kind of like business. gone by the wayside now that yes. you can get all those medical devices that be able to exactly. do that Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. So that wraps up our case for uh, Janet. Let's kind of look at Maria a little bit, right? So Maria is a 65-year-old female, right? She's recently retired librarian. She's an avid hiker. She has young grandchildren. So we're all going to be friends with her, right? Because she has a great book list. 
She undergoes a minimally invasive hysterectomy. She has the BSO. When she looks at her pathology, the pathologist finds um, a grade 2 endometrial adenocarcinoma, unfortunately still at that grade 3C1. Her IHC revealed uh, that she is proficient in MMR. She received six cycles of chemotherapy, which carboplatin and paclitaxel, that's kind of our go-to at that time. She had a really good response, right? That's what we expected from her. She came in for her three-month appointment. She came in for her six-month appointment. But at that seven month, she calls, right, because she calls us and she calls our triage staff and our triage staff says, nope, you need to come in. She starts having these kind of, you know, bland kind of symptoms. She's got some, you know, some abdominal pain. And in our world in Gynoc, we have a very low threshold for CT exams, right? So we do an abdominal CT, unfortunately showing that she has disease in the abdomen. We do a, bi- a biopsy confirming metastatic disease. And actually, she's able to go on this treatment, right, lumbatinib and pembrolizumab, which is that new kind of gives us a good direction and how we proceed. But unfortunately, she's now presented with grade two diarrhea. Okay. So, so Kim, tell us a little bit about that team approach and how you would help Maria in this team approach. So she's contacted your triage staff. The triage staff is highly educated and they've been given a raise. They came to ONS. They know all of these things, right? Um, and now they come to you and say, your patient on pembrolizumab and lumvatinib now has diarrhea. I've looked at the grading system. It's a grade two. Please fix it. How would we start that? Well, at first I would do an extensive, you know, history and find out when it started, how often, how much, um, you know, is it bloody? Is it not bloody? Is she having pain with it? And has she tried anything to manage it? Has it been successful or not? And and like I had mentioned before, my first inclination would be to hold the levatinib and see you know, after a couple of days, if the diarrhea didn't improve. And if that was the case, great. If not, and it continued and she was having a lot of pain and discomfort, then I would, you know, lean towards it may be the Pembro causing colitis. Which is a complete different right. then, set of... Yes, then, then we are looking at some steroids for a while. So, Dr. Moore, in your clinic, is it you that are doing, is it doing the education session? I mean, obviously you're doing that, but when they sit down, do they sit down and talk with a nurse? Are they talking with the nurse educators about these new side effects of the IO management and the TKI? Are they having a whole new session of that chemotherapy education session that we do? You mean at the initiation of therapy? At, so, yeah, the recurrence. So, let's take in Maria. She's already had chemotherapy, but now she's going to go and we're going to have pembrolizumab and lumbatinib. Is she going to sit down uh, again with a nurse navigator? How does that work in your clinic? In our practice, and I'm very fortunate, I'm in a big academic center. So they sit down with me and I go through this um, and I go through it in pretty, a lot of detail. Um, But then I also have a a clinical pharmacist who comes in behind me, who puts in the orders and goes through it again with them and make sure that they have all of the, for whatever we're using, all of the medications that they may need at home. So, um, so they get, uh, and that's true of all my partners. So, so our patients actually get a lot of, um, a lot of education up front. And then, um, her name's Sarah Hayward. Don't steal her. She's amazing. <laughs> She's amazing. Uh, and I would be sunk without her. So, so when our patients struggle, like she'll often, my nurse, my amazing nurse gets the calls and a lot of things she can triage, 
but with the immune checkpoint inhibitors or some of the other things that are particular to my clinics, I do a lot of trials. It kind of goes right to Sarah. And so she'll escalate things um, pretty quickly. So, uh, so we have a really good team triaging these, which I realize a lot of practices don't have that. And so it's sort of really just having, you know, whoever's answering the phone, which often is one of our nurses, having just this high index of suspicion for bumping things up to um, a level if they if they feel like they need some help. And anybody that calls with anything on LENPEM in our practice gets bumped up because it's just too easy for something to get missed and patients can get sick on this. It's a great regimen. It works really well. But you have to be careful and you have to dose modify most patients. 80% of patients get a dose reduction on this if you start at the starting dose. So, you know, it's um, a lot of hands-on at the beginning. So let's go on to an ovarian cancer case looking at Elizabeth here. So again, Elizabeth is 62 years old. As you can see, they kind of fall into that age bracket, which is that typical diagnosis. She is an attorney. She plays recreational tennis. She's an active community. Uh, she's active in her community, right? She presents with those diffuse, very easily ignorable symptoms, right? How many times have the patient come in and said, I just thought I was a little bit bloated or I didn't realize, you know, I was been trying to lose weight. I didn't realize that this 10 pounds wasn't coming off just because I've been playing tennis, right? She does have a past medical history of hypertension and anemia. She has no known family history. So she didn't have anything to worry about, she thought, because, you know, BRCA is not in my family. So how am I going to get ovarian cancer? Unfortunately, when she has this, uh, her blood work drawn, her CA-125 is actually elevated to about 1,200. She has a transvaginal ultrasound. She has a biopsy confirming high-grade serious serious ovarian cancer. Her Actually, her testing is she is BRCA negative, but HRD positive. She undergoes chemotherapy. She has carboplatin, paclitaxel, and they actually added bevacizumab for this for six cycles. Then she was started on Olaparib in that maintenance session, right? She comes into us now, she's experienced some fatigue and some low hemoglobin, right? Because she already has a history of anemia, but she's also having fatigue, which can be related. So as you guys know, I don't have to say it to anyone else. When we get that phone call, we're also now a detective, right? So where is this fatigue coming from? So what would be our next steps here? Kim, tell me a little bit about what happens when this patient calls into your clinic and tell me, you know, if she's experienced fatigue and low hemoglobin, what, what was your go-to? Well, I would want to know how low her hemoglobin is. And and then actually, these are the people I like to see because fatigue can be related to obviously anemia, but it can be related to a lot of other things. It can be related to just them having difficulty adjusting to an, another therapy. It can be related to depression. Are they having problems sleeping? Because sometimes people who start PARP inhibitors can have insomnia and so it can be a variety of reasons. I also, you know, would give obviously probably some packed cells um, depending on the hemoglobin, but also looking at her iron stores and, and thinking about giving her some IV iron. Um, you could check her, her B12 and her folic acid too. Sometimes we forget about just those basic things, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't always have to be related. You can think about, like, you, like Kim had said, you know, are they getting up and moving, right? She was an active player or recreational tennis player before this. Is she no longer playing tennis? And now, you know, is that contributing to her, her fatigue as well? If we modify her case just a little bit as well, right? 
Let's look at her weight. Kim talked about and Dr. Moore talked about the weights and plates for certain medications such as Neraparib. Now, her weight is 72 kilograms, actually, which is a little bit lower than what we thought, you know, so maybe we have to start at a different dose. Hint, hint. Right. Her platelets are 250,000. When she underwent chemotherapy, she had paclitaxel and carboplatin. Then we started her on Neraparib and we actually started her on this right dose here, right, because at 200 milligrams. Her platelets actually dropped rather quickly from 250,000 to 90,000 just after two weeks of starting this medication. So, Dr. Moore, when you see this patient, what are you going to do and how are we, go- how are we going to fix? How are we going to fix her? So um, this is a great case because this actually happens um, very frequently. Neraparib uh, is a very good PARP inhibitor. It's, it is very potent related to platelets. So I think all of we've sort of beaten this message in that different from Olaparib and Rucaparib, you have to do weekly labs when you first start Neraparib for probably the first two months. Like it's a must. And then if you change the dose, you have to do it again. So these are early events. Um, they don't tend to be cumulative, but you have to catch them and... And this can't be a lab that comes in from an outside hospital and sits like on the computer on a Friday and you find it on a Monday. Because when you see that 90, you got to hold. You got to reach the patient, confirm you've reached the patient, and she's to stop her neraparib. Um, and then you recheck it within, you know, 72 hours to make sure it's not continued to fall uh, to, to more precipitous levels. So someone that fell this much, you'd be holding, um, following until it was kind of back to baseline, uh, and then you'd bring her down to 100. And if she still had problems, um, which I that happened, then I would rotate the PARP, which you can do. Um, and then they have to do it twice a day, and there's differences in counseling. But um, but you have to hold, and then when you restart at 100, you have to start the week, the weekly tests again. And once it's stable for you know, two months is what I kind of do, then you can go to monthly testing because it's not this cumulative thing that's going to happen again Um in, in general, but at the beginning, it's weekly. And I totally agree with everything that you said um, about checking uh, nutritional levels. I actually do that at the beginning of chemo now. In Oklahoma, we have just such nutritional deficiencies. Um, iron, iron deficiency is really common. And these our patients with ovarian cancer just can't tolerate high-dose oral iron. They just feel terrible. They get super constipated. So we use Injectifer. We don't even mess with it. I mean, it just tortures patients. And then B12, and we check vitamin D, everything, and they're all low. So we replace all that at the beginning to try and um, offset the anemia issue. Um, but I totally agree with everything that you said. I think it's really important. I wouldn't even wait till someone's anemic. I would just check it when you're starting a PARP. Just mm-hmm. check it all and replace the deficiencies because it'll just minimize how severe it gets. So there came a couple of questions about PARP inhibitor. I think this is a great time to ask them. And you had mentioned the labs that you would check. Are there any additional labs that you would check specifically for PARP inhibitors? Um, not really. I mean, if you're using, um, there's just other things you pay attention to. So heme toxicities are the main things that are the class effect. Uh, with rucaparib, if you're using rucaparib or rubraca, you can see this um, bump in the uh, liver transaminases that's transient and it's not reflective of true liver in- in injury. And truthfully, I don't check it weekly and so I, I don't see it anymore. So but if you check it weekly, you'll find that. Um, and unless it's going up, 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 you don't need to worry about it. It comes back down. So it's a nuance of rucaparib. And both alaparib and rucaparib can cause this like slight bump in the creatinine. 
where it just bumps up a little bit and then it just hangs out there. And it's just because it's displaced creatinine from the transporter. It's not true renal um, injury, but you just have to know those things. So we follow um, monthly CMPs and CBCs on our patients on PARP uh, and C125. But other than that, um, not really. I just think the thing with PARP inhibitors, and maybe we'll see less of this in the front line because we're using it for a time limited, but we still have patients in the recurrent setting that were treated for forever. And if you're not careful, and I've not been careful, so I'm telling you this from experience, you really have to pay attention to um, just all the counts, like the diff, because you'll see this like in patients who are at risk for MDS, you'll see this sort of drift in their ANCs. And it's if you have navigators managing your patient, which I do, and they're fantastic, They'll be like, oh, she's okay. You know, it's it's in range, but someone's gone from like an ANC of 2,000 and now they're kind of cruising at like 900. And that's sort of a, that should get your antennas up um, to maybe get some uh, some opinions. So I think you do have to just, I like how you can just trend values and just make sure you're not seeing some slow drift down. You just have to be careful watching for those who are at risk. I know we have mentioned the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition a couple of times for patients. However, they're also there for you. You guys can order care packages to be delivered to your facilities in groups of five or more, so you always have something available to your patients. These are great tools for your patients to have. They have great information in them. They have great resources. They have um, you know, faces of hope that will actually send patients care gifts as well. They have great activities. I know in Arizona where I was previously, we had a great facility where patients went. They had scholarships. They were at a spa. They were able to get great information from, you know, peers and providers. This is something that are your, your patients will actually use. It's not like that binder sometimes that gets kind of shoved in the back. This is actual great patient information for you there. We're going to summarize it up just a little bit with some team-based collaboration. This is exactly what our patients deserve. They are the center of this circle here, as you can kind of see, and around them are all the tools that they get to benefit from. And we as nurses, providers, pathologists, we are all part of their circle, giving them the best possible care that they can, giving them the best, you know, ability to survive this disease. And as we wrap up tonight, I want you to really kind of take away with you that biomarker testing is very, very important to your patients there is a mil- multitude of um, therapies that we are, you know, been privileged to be a part of as part of clinical trial. This has been a very big year for gynecologic cancers and a very big step up for our patients. If you look over time, sometimes it was very stagnant in the in the setting of gynecologic cancers. We have more available to them than we ever have. We would like to prioritize clinical trial enrollment from the beginning for all patients. Right, all patients should be doing this. Educate your patients, educating yourselves, know how to answer those questions so that our patients get the best possible information from us. We have about five minutes left. I have about two or three important questions that you guys have put in. So thank you so much for giving them those questions. I'm going to look uh, to Dr. Moore real quick. And I think this is a great question um, for me as well, how your practice is doing it. Do you ever switch between PARP inhibitors? Do you go PARP after PARP? So I do switch for toxicity. Um, because uh, they really can be different. You know, their oral medications and patients metabolize them different. They're all a little bit different. So I have a patient in particular I'm thinking about who is on Olaparib 
and her counts were fine and all the things, but she had a rash. So you can get rashes with some of these PARP inhibitors. Um, and she was super bothered by this. And so I rotated her to Rubraca and it went away and she was fine. And she was on that for like another year. Um, same with the, you know, if I had platelets drop or if I had big heme toxicity with Neraparib and they were otherwise tolerating it, I would rotate to Olaparib. So I do rotate for toxicity um, in settings where I want to maintain a patient on a PARP. PARP after PARP, like, is, am I going to use a second PARP someday is mm-hmm. like a different question. Um, have I done that? Yes. Will I continue to do it? Yes. In very select patients. Um, as a routine, I think it's probably ill-advised given the data that's emerging about the higher risk of treatment-related myeloid neoplasms, uh, especially amongst those patients who are BRCA. So I think there's a place for it, but it's real select. So probably falling off on that practice a little. All right. And Kim, to wrap us up, what are your tips for positive collaboration when you're working between other specialties, uh, between yourself as a nurse practitioner, between nurses, between providers? What would you say the best tip that you can give to all of us listening and how to make that relationship work? Honestly, I think just reaching out to them and, and letting them know what is it what it is that you want help with um, and, you know, being as direct and as specific as you can be. And if you if you really need help, I've not run into somebody who said, you know, I'll get back to you in two weeks and you never hear from them. Um, when it comes to taking care of patients, that's what we all do and what we want to do a really good job at. And I feel like other specialties feel the same way. And so if you reach out to them, you tell them what you need, they're more than likely going to get back with you and and give you the advice or the recommendations that you're looking for. Same to you. And one last question that just came in. One of the questions that says, do all NCI designated centers have access to this type of immunotherapy um, for their gynecologic cancers? These immune therapies that you see are, you know, NCC and approved. They should not have any issue getting approved through um, your patient's insurance. Um, Some of our bigger um, situations, such as Dr. Moore and uh, Kim, they work at big settings they might have access to more clinical trials for these to have open. Not every clinical trial is open at every single center, but um, all of this, all of these medications that have been FDA approved can definitely, definitely be available to them on all, all sites. Thank you very much. I appreciate your dedication to your patients and for coming out tonight. Thank you again. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VRD 860. This educational activity is supported by educational grants from ASI Incorporated, GSK, Merck & Company Incorporated, and NovoCure Incorporated.